Hello and welcome to the December 2022 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I have to confess I'm recording today's episode wrapped up in a big blanket. Yes, winter is definitely here. I put off turning on the heating for as long as I could, but when my laptop started telling me the battery was too cold, I knew it was time to admit defeat. Today, I'll be talking all things longevity with Tim Gordon and Matt Fletcher, but before that, here's this month's news. In keeping with recent tradition, we'll cover the political changes first. No new Prime Minister this month, but we do have an update on the Pensions Minister. After some early signs at the end of October, Laura Trott has now been confirmed as the new Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Pensions. That's the full job title, so there's no mention of financial inclusion like we had during Guy Opperman's tenure, or growth from Alex Burghardt's brief spell in the role. The DWP said Ms Trott will have responsibility for pensioner benefits, including the state pension, private and occupational pensions, and oversight of arm's length bodies such as the pensions regulator. Guy Opperman does remain at the DWP, with his new role being confirmed as Minister of State for Employment, with responsibility for the labour market. Things do seem to have settled down a bit now, so hopefully I won't have any more political updates for you in the next episode. We're not getting away from politics just yet, as we also had the Chancellor's autumn statement this month. As with most recent budget announcements, despite a lot of speculation about pensions tax changes in the run-up, there was almost no pensions content in the final statement. We did get confirmation that the triple lock for state pensions would be reinstated this year, meaning the increase applied in April 2023 will be in line with the September 2022 CPI increase of 10.1%. The changes to income tax, outside Scotland at least, could also be relevant to pensions. The tax bans have all been frozen for an additional two years, so they'll now remain fixed at their current levels until April 2028. The threshold for the 45% tax rate, which was going to be abolished altogether a few weeks ago, will now be extended down from £150,000 to around £125,000. Over time, these changes will lead to more people moving into a higher tax band, which could mean the tax relief available on pension savings becomes more attractive. The other thing we got was some news on changes to Solvency 2, which is the regulatory regime for insurance companies in the EU. The changes are part of the government's objective to tailor financial services regulation in the UK post-Brexit. Now, I'll keep this quite high level, but essentially the government's planning two changes. The first is a reduction in the extra reserve that insurers have to hold for risks that are tricky to hedge. For annuity funds, that mainly means longevity risk. The second is an increase in the range of assets that insurers are allowed to invest in. These changes could be relevant for schemes that are considering a potential risk settlement transaction. We don't expect a significant step change to insurer pricing or capital levels. However, the increased investment flexibility should help relieve some of the capacity constraints for annuity funds, potentially supporting higher bulk annuity volumes without price rises. It will take more time and work for this to happen, starting with new legislation expected in 2023, but the proposed changes have been welcomed by insurers. A couple of quick updates on pension dashboards now. So I mentioned last month that the DWP had published its final dashboard regulations, Well, these regulations are now law, having been approved by Parliament on the 15th of November. The dashboards project continues to move forward, with the pensions dashboard programme due to start live testing with over 20 schemes in early 2023, and the first staging deadline is now less than nine months away. There are also three, yes three, dashboard consultations. 
The first is from the PDP, who are consulting on dashboard design standards. These standards will apply to dashboard providers and they aim to ensure a consistent user experience by setting out how information must be clearly presented to the user in a comprehensible manner that's accessible and inclusive. This consultation runs until the 16th of February. The second one is from the Financial Conduct Authority and it sets out their proposed regulatory framework for dashboard providers. The main purpose of this framework is to protect consumers using dashboards from potential harm, although the FCA are also keen to encourage innovation and will allow dashboard providers to develop a range of services beyond the core find and view functionality. Again, this one closes on the 16th of February. The last one may be of the most interest to our audience and it relates to the pensions regulators dashboards compliance and enforcement policy. The dashboard regulations introduce new duties on certain trustees and scheme managers and TPR will be responsible for policing compliance with these duties. Their consultation includes several scenarios illustrating how their approach might translate in practice for a range of breaches. TPR say they'll be pragmatic, but they've also repeated their previous comments that they'll be taking a dim view of willful or reckless non-compliance. This consultation is open for a bit longer than the other two, closing on the 24th of February. And finally, we have some updates on the LDI story from the last couple of episodes. Again, if you need a reminder of the background, please listen back to the October episode. Markets have remained a lot calmer since mid-October, and the Bank of England started selling the gilts it bought in the immediate aftermath of September's mini-budget. Unlike previous operations where the bank aims to raise a fixed amount through sales of gilts, the bank will instead sell these long-dated gilts based on market demand to avoid hurting the markets. Many of the pooled LDI funds are located and regulated in Ireland and Luxembourg, and the national competent authorities for those countries have issued a joint statement setting out their expectations for funds to maintain a specific liquidity buffer given the recent market volatility and the uncertain geopolitical landscape. Off the back of this, TPR have issued some guidance for trustees and advisors confirming their expectations for the use of LDI funds. TPR have said the liquidity buffer for pooled funds should also apply for segregated leveraged LDI mandates and single client funds as they face the same market risks and operational challenges. TPR sets out 10 practical steps trustees should take in order to test the liquidity buffer and ensure they can respond quickly to stress in the market. TPR's guidance also sets out their expectations of any trustees who depart from this buffer and include some additional comments for schemes which may prefer to ensure liquidity by establishing a line of credit with their sponsoring employer. What's becoming clear here is that schemes with LDI strategies won't have access to the same levels of leverage they had before the mini-budget. This may mean some schemes who are relying on being able to generate high returns while also maintaining high hedge ratios may need to rethink their strategies. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. One of many surreal experiences at the peak of the COVID pandemic was having national mortality statistics beamed into our homes on a daily basis. While memories of Professor Chris Whitty and his colleagues start to fade from the public consciousness, longevity remains as important as ever for pension schemes, so we thought it was about time we covered it on the podcast. I know enough about this topic to get by, but I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert. Fortunately, I'm joined by a couple of guests who do fall into that category, Tim Gordon and Matt Fletcher. Tim leads Aon's Demographic Horizons team, which is responsible for Aon's longevity and other demographics modeling and advice. Matt's a member of our Demographic Horizons team, and he's a longevity specialist who's led our research into the impact of COVID-19 on future longevity. Matt also chairs the CMI's SAPS committee, 
which reduces the pensions industry's standard mortality base tables. Now, Tim, if we just start at a quite a high level, what's keeping you busy in the world of longevity at the moment? Um, thank you, Ricky. Uh, I'm guessing no one will be surprised to hear that we're trying to make sense of post-pandemic mortality trends while we're still in the very turbulent wake of that same pandemic. Clearly, we had exceptionally high mortality in 2020 and 2021 compared with what was expected. It was a pandemic. Um, incidentally, it is worth noting that the levels of mortality we experienced in 2020 and 2021 would actually have been seen as normal only 10 years earlier. And if you're surprised by that, then you should probably chalk that up as a lesson in how impactful the steady drip drip of annual mortality improvement can actually be and how important it is to try and get future improvement assumptions right when estimating pension scheme liabilities. Um, anyway, back to the point, we can't sensibly use data from 2020 and 2021 to understand mortality trends, but it's more tricky uh, than us missing a couple of data points. Um, first, there was accelerated social change uh, during that period, which itself can affect longevity. We've exited the pandemic into a global economic crisis. COVID-19 itself has not gone away. And there are other indirect knock-on impacts from the pandemic. And finally, the pattern of mortality in 2022 has actually been very difficult to decode. Actuaries all over the land are scratching their heads trying to make sense of it. Um, so it's a good job that we have Matt, our expert, uh, in the room to help shed some light on those points. Yes. So Matt, Tim mentioned there the pattern of mortality in 2022, and we have seen some recent news stories about excess deaths coming back. What's your view as to what's going on there? So, yes, thanks, Ricky. Um, this year, the, the the number of deaths that were directly caused by COVID, um, as Tim mentioned, it has been lower than it had been in the previous two years. So uh, for some sort of numbers that in 2022 so far, there have been about 30,000 deaths um, in England and Wales, which involve COVID, and that compares to over 80,000 um, in 2020 and 75,000 in 2021. So uh, much lower, but it, it hasn't gone away. Um, for the first few months of 2022, uh, total death rates in the population were roughly in line with the numbers that we'd seen in 2019, which I think led uh, to hopes that they were returning to somewhat more typical levels. Um, but in about April of this year, we started to see the numbers of deaths increase um, significantly. Um, and the Continuous Mortality Investigation, which publishes uh, weekly figures based off the ONS data, um, they estimate that there have been about 25,000 more deaths now in 2022 uh, than their 2019 baseline. Um, and so people had talked about the possibility of higher mortality rates continuing into 2022, but the sudden shift from lower to higher mortality rates was, was quite surprising, and for two reasons in particular. Um, firstly, death rates in summer months are usually a lot more predictable than in the winter. Um, so having a much higher mortality rate in the summer than expected was, was quite uh, unusual. 
and secondly because the number of excess deaths in recent months has been quite a lot higher than the number of covid deaths so there was something else going on um, than, than just direct sort of covid um, infection leading to severe disease and death and and there's been a lot of analysis and investigation into likely causes of this the principal candidates at the moment are um so firstly covid infection having a negative impact on health even after individuals seem to have recovered from infection um, so in particular there are studies that suggest that circulatory disease is higher amongst those who have been infected um, secondly the the knock-on impacts of the pandemic uh, on the healthcare system the data shows that the nhs is under severe pressure and has been for some time and again this isn't usually uh, the case in the summer months in particular so you do tend to see most winters that there is pressure on the nhs but um, in the spring and summer months that doesn't tend to be the case um, thirdly disruption to diagnoses and cancellation or delay of treatments during the pandemic period so people are presenting um, with more severe disease potentially than they would have done if they had um, had their diagnosis or treatment uh, during the pandemic so and finally uh, additional deaths from the record temperatures that we saw in several periods in July and August of 2022. So yeah, those are those are the uh, the principal candidates for what's been driving the excess deaths in 2022. And there's then a sort of ongoing question and investigation as to the extent to which those are short-term factors or uh, longer-term factors that will affect mortality further into the future. Yeah, so I guess that that is really the, the million dollar question. How how would you say this is all affecting the outlook for future longevity improvements compared to what we had before the pandemic? Yeah, and it's it's sort of more than a, a million dollar question, I guess, in the sense that it uh, it will drive um, what pension schemes will be assuming for their mortality assumptions. Um, it's pretty clear that the overall outlook for longevity improvements is less positive than it was before the pandemic. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that the outlook immediately pre-pandemic was itself less positive than it had been a few years before. And we had seen sort of relatively slow improvements uh, over the period from around 2010-2011 up to 2019. Um, and we're seeing this kind of uh, less positive outlook in the general views of colleagues, both within Aon and the, the people that we interact with in the, the wider actuarial community. And we you know, regularly uh, speak to, to longevity experts outside of um, Aon within the, the CMI, for example, or the actuarial, actuarial response group. Um, we're also seeing this in longevity swap transactions. And Aon's risk settlement group has uh, a very big presence in this area. We've um, been dealing with a, a lot of longevity swap work over the last uh, months and years. And we put particular weight on the views um, here because <clears throat> it's the one area where people are putting real money against their longevity assumption. They're actually sort of transacting based on um, what their view is of, of mortality improvements into the future. And here we are seeing a clear reduction in people's best estimate improvements. Um, 
it's worth pointing out that we're not and and so there isn't a general expectation that life expectancies themselves will reduce so we are still expecting to see improvements in in mortality um, but that those improvements that we're projecting are l less than they were uh, our bees were pre-pandemic so Tim, what do you think the CMI should do in relation to its mortality projections model, given that that plays such a crucial role in assessing pension scheme liabilities? Uh, good question, Ricky. Um, first, maybe some background for our listeners. The CMI mortality projections model is the industry standard in the UK for projecting future mortality and longevity. Um, and it's interesting to note that it has been adapted by actuaries in other countries for their mortality projections. At a very high level, the, the model does two things. It estimates recent trends by smoothing the data, and then it projects those trends into the future. The version we use in the UK is based on national mortality data, and it's updated annually, usually around the beginning of March each year, uh, using data up to and including the previous calendar year. Um, before we get into it, uh, just fair disclosure, I'm an ex-chair of the CMI itself, and I've also chaired the CMI committee responsible for the projections model. Matt is a current member of the CMI's executive committee and has also previously been on the committee responsible for the CMI model. So both of us have been intimately involved with the model in the not too distant past. Um, in relation to the pandemic, the CMI very sensibly took the stance that the data for the pandemic years that's 2020 and 2021, should not be included in the model because that would massively distort projections. The model smooths out annual fluctuations, but no sensible standard smoothing method can cope with the variations we saw during the pandemic. And for the avoidance of any doubt, we were completely in agreement with the CMI on that decision. The question now is what to do with data from 2022, i.e. the year that we're in now, uh, for the next version of the model to be released in 2023. On the one hand, the CMI model does need to start incorporating up-to-date data, otherwise it'll gradually become less current and it will lose credibility. So that would suggest that data from 2022 should be included in the model. On the other hand, as Matt's outlined, 2022 is currently looking like a squirrely mortality year, by which I mean we think it may contain some exceptional pandemic-related elements and so not be predictive. Um, it's also worth bearing in mind that including 2022 will have a much higher impact than normal because the previous two years are missing. So you can think of this as the model coasting during the pandemic years because it was not adjusting to incoming data and then suddenly being yanked onto a different path by the data for 2022. Um, so trying to put those two things together uh, in a pragmatic way at Aon, our view is that as a one-off, the least bad option is for the CMI to place a partial, say well below 50% weighting on 2022's data, but then to signal that it expects to revert to 100% weighting on annual data from 2023 onwards. So that means for versions of the model published in 2024 and beyond. Uh, just to wrap things up, and I can't help noting that this has all been quite negative. Um, as this is technically our Christmas episode, is there any good news at all? That's a really important point, Ricky, because there are factors that are very positive for longevity. But they are probably, and I stress probably, they are probably likely to have a material impact at, say, a 10-year time horizon. 
These factors include genetic therapies like CRISPR gene editing and prosthetic gene therapy, uh, development of other innovative treatments, uh, the RNA vaccines that saw first use during the pandemic themselves have future potential application as individually tailored cancer treatments. Um, constant personal medical monitoring uh, could have a huge impact. We're already seeing watches that detect heart rate anomalies or if you've had a fall, but we could also have things like lose that sample your waste products and use that to diagnose medical conditions. And finally, um, deep learning and AI, the sort of thing uh, where I know Google guesses your next entry before you've even put it in, um, those sorts of things are starting to make real intro inroads into medical diagnostics, um, for instance, interpreting scans, but they have huge potential to accelerate progress in lots of medical and health related fields. So the longer term view is potentially transformative and we have not lost sight of that. It's just that the short term outlook may not be so positive. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on today. And I think we're just about at the point where it's not too early to say have a good Christmas. OK, that's all for today and indeed for this year. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to my guests, Matt Fletcher and Tim Gordon. I'm off to read my electricity and gas meters. And provided that doesn't give me a heart attack, I'll be back with the next episode in February. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. If you'd like more information on our retirement solutions or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com. <laughs>